We are starting a new series on the gospel. I think you all know the word gospel means good news. We're, believe it or not, coming into the Christmas season again, where this opening scripture no doubt will be heard many times on the radio and in church services and in plays. But I want to look at this verse because it kind of sets the stage for this whole study. We're calling this the good news of mega joy, and that thought is taken from this opening scripture in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, the announcement of Christ's birth. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Now, it's interesting. You'll notice a couple of notations there in the scriptures where you see that word terrified In bold, in verse 9, they were terrified. King James, I think, says, sore afraid. And it actually uses the Greek word mega, which we normally understand to mean great. You know, Pastor David Slentz and I were joking this week how it used to be a megabyte was a pretty large amount of memory. Our first computer its entire hard drive was 20 megabytes. And I was sending him a small file over the internet of 31 megabytes, and I suddenly realized this file wouldn't have fit on our first computer. And mega means large, and of course they thought a megabyte at that time was going to be a large amount of memory. Now they have zettabytes and yodabytes, and I don't know what kind of names they've come up with for huge amounts of computer memory. But the word means great. So they were greatly afraid, but the angel said to them, don't be afraid, I bring you good news of mega, of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. You know, it's sad, but even in churches, a lot of people think the the good news of great joy is Christmas gifts and eating a lot and seeing family and maybe snow falling on December 25th and we can call it a white Christmas. <laughs> and the devil likes that when we don't really understand what the news is. And the purpose of this Bible study is to look a little bit more in depth. What is the good news? Apparently, if we really understand the good news, it is designed to bring mega joy, not only into our lives, but notice, for all the people. For all the people. This wasn't just for a select group in Jerusalem or Bethlehem or Israel. It's for all people, the good news of the gospel. And what we want to try to do in the next few weeks is delve a little bit more deeply. What exactly is this news? I plan at some point in the future to come back to this theme and look at it from another point of view. How do we share the good news with others? What is evangelism? And of course, The word evangelism comes from the word for gospel. It means to announce the good news. Well, if you don't know what you're announcing, you certainly can't announce anything. So we need to know what the message is before we can clearly state it 
to others and do what the Bible tells us to do, to preach the gospel. Let's begin by looking at a scripture in the Gospel of Matthew, which is actually, part of it is a quotation from the verses that are given here in your outline from Isaiah chapter 8. Let's read firstly in Matthew 4, beginning at verse 12 down to 17. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, and here comes the quotation from Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. That's the end of the quote. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Whenever you see a quotation like that, and there are a lot of them, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, Throughout Matthew, you find him saying, as it is written, or as it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, because he's trying to connect the Old Testament with the New and to show how Christ was the fulfillment of a lot of these prophecies. I would always recommend, if your Bible has the little footnote for the reference in the Old Testament, go look it up and read the whole context because sometimes that gives you an even deeper insight into what the whole prophecy is about. And that's what I've done here. I'm taking you back now to Isaiah 8, but we're going to go a little bit before the quotation that Matthew uses to see if we can get some more context. And so in Isaiah 8, we're going to pick it up in verse 19 and go all the way to chapter 9, a very familiar, again, Christmas verse, and we're certainly not celebrating Christmas tonight, but we are talking about good news, and Isaiah 9, 6 is probably well known to you, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. But I think when you see the whole context here, this quotation takes on a much deeper meaning. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists, and just a little side note, a lot of people are telling us to do that now. There's a, a heightened interest in astrology, in witchcraft, in spiritism, in a lot of spiritual-sounding things, but they're not scriptural. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? And verse 20 is one of my favorite scriptures. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. In other words, they have no light in them if they're not speaking according to the word of God. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished... You might expect the next phrase to say something like, they humbled themselves and they turned to God. That's not what it says, is it? They're distressed, they're hungry, they're famished, and they do what we often do. They get more proud, they stiffen their necks more, and they actually become angry at God. It says... When they're in that condition, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. Not a real good thing to do when you're in trouble. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. And this sets the stage for the quotation that Matthew uses. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. 
In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. We know about the darkness they were in from the previous verses. This is not just economic darkness. This is spiritual darkness. They were turning to spiritists, mediums. They were distressed, hungry, famished. They were under some kind of fearful gloom, it says. But now God says, no more gloom. The people who were sitting in darkness are about to see a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, we still don't know what this light is, but he continues. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. I've highlighted that for a reason. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, Midian was one of Israel's enemies, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, and the rod of their oppressor. And here comes the verse we all know. For to us, now we're about to learn who the light is. The light that's going to dispel all this darkness and despair and hopelessness. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's interesting that Matthew doesn't go that far in quoting from Isaiah. I'm sure he knew the rest of the scripture. I'm sure he knew that it was leading up to this messianic prophecy that Christ himself fulfilled. A child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. His real purpose at this point is just to introduce us to the light that is now about to shine into the darkness there in Israel and more specifically in the region around the Sea of Galilee. The people living in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And it is interesting that he does connect indirectly Christ and his first words spoken in his ministry with Isaiah 9-6, which makes reference to the government or the kingdom being on his shoulders. And by no accident, the very first message that Jesus speaks is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The government of God is at hand. The announcement here of good news is no more gloom. Notice that in Isaiah 9 verse 1, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. Down in verse 4, they're going to rejoice as in the day of Midian's defeat. You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. They may have thought that this meant they were about to be delivered from Roman rule and Roman oppression. That's not what the prophecy was about. It was about deliverance from spiritual oppression, a spiritual yoke. This opens up the discussion for us tonight. The good news of the gospel is far more than just a happy time once a year at Christmas. This is about deliverance from bondage. It's about being set free from things that bring gloom and depression and, and bondage into people's lives. And so what we want to do tonight in the, in the next few weeks is look more closely, what is the good news? 
What is this good news that brings great or mega joy to all people? I don't know about you, but the people I see in my day-to-day life, a lot of them don't have joy. They don't have any joy at all. And a lot of the folks I see in the news, they have no joy. And so joy is a very precious commodity in our day. And I think the stage is being set for God to put us front and center for the world to look and see, is there any real joy in the church? And I I was looking at my own life today. Do I have real joy? What is my joy? Is it my possessions? Is it my circumstances? Or is it based in something far deeper than any of that? Well, we're going to see that the good news of the gospel has nothing to do with what you own, what your station or position in life is, how well things are going for you in your day-to-day life. This has nothing to do with any of that. It's about your spiritual condition and the degree to which you have come to understand what Jesus Christ came for and what he accomplished. And of course, if we were to ask the question, what is the good news? Well, the angels announced it there in Luke 2. The good news simply was, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. We're going to go a little bit beyond this, but let me keep it simple for just a second. The good news is Jesus, period. (laughs) Okay, we can close up our books and go home. That's it. It's not a system. It's not a new religion. It's not a new set of laws and commandments, do's and don'ts. It's a person. Never before and never again will there be a person like this. Christ the Lord. He is the good news. He is the one that can bring mega joy into our lives. Nothing else, no one else can take his place. Today, a Savior has been born. Isaiah 9, 6, to us a child is born, a son is given. The whole gospel message centers around the person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And in Hebrews 1, we're on page 2 now, in our outline at the top there, the writer of Hebrews says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, at many times and in various ways. But, and we studied this at length when we did the dispensations, there's a clear line between the Old Covenant and the New. The Old Covenant, God spoke in a whole different way through prophets and different messages he sent to the people. But now, the New Covenant is the messenger. It is the sacrifice, and it is the priest. All three are the same person. It's Jesus. He's the messenger of the New Covenant. He's the sacrifice of the New Covenant. And he is the officiating high priest of the New Covenant. So he says, but in these last days, God is speaking a different way. He's not just speaking through Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. Let that sink in. God's message is Jesus. It's not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Ephesians, the book of Revelation. The message is the Son. And sometimes, even as Christians in the church, we can get kind of lost in the woods. (laughs) We forget what the message is. The message isn't just thou shalt or thou shalt not, or 1 Corinthians says you should do this, and Galatians says you shouldn't do that. The message for these last days is a person. It's Jesus. The good news is Jesus. 
And the degree to which you and I know him, receive him, and allow him to take over our lives, that's the degree to which we are going to experience mega joy. And ultimately, and hopefully, be able to communicate that message of joy to others. Now, there are a number of terms that you'll find in the New Testament that refer to the gospel. I've just listed a few of the key ones here. Uh, You can look up these scriptures on your own, and I would strongly urge you to do that. You find terms like the gospel of God's grace. You know, the law wasn't good news. You don't find anywhere in the Bible that God announced to Moses and the children of Israel at Mount Sinai the gospel of the law. (laughs) Because it wasn't good news. It was bad news. God knew from the very minute his finger was engraving those ten laws on the stones, this wasn't going to bring good news to mankind. We learn many, many centuries later through the wisdom and revelation of Paul The reason the law was given was to make man exceedingly sinful. It was to show him a sinner. The law, thou shalt not covet, wasn't designed to free mankind from covetousness. The exact opposite. It was to stir up covetousness. It was to expose man as a greedy, covetous person. And so the law wasn't good news, but the gospel of God's grace, the the message of the new covenant is grace. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And there in Acts 20, Paul describes the whole mission of his life. His whole purpose in life was now to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Grace, I think you remember if you've been with us in previous studies, grace is getting what you don't deserve and not getting what you do. That make sense? Let me make it a little clearer. We deserve hell. Grace, you don't get hell. We don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve crowns and glory. We don't deserve to spend eternity with a perfect, pure holy and loving God, but he's inviting us to join him and spend heaven in his kingdom. We don't deserve that, and it's being offered to us. So there are two aspects to grace. We get what we don't deserve, and we don't get what we do deserve. That's good news. And the more you study the the grace of God and the whole message of grace, the better you understand the gospel because it is the good news of God's grace. You also find in Ephesians this term, the gospel of salvation. Here again, damnation is not good news. Salvation is. Going to hell is not good news. Being freed from hell, saved from sin, saved from hell, is good news. So the gospel or the good news of salvation is something we're going to better understand as we proceed in this study. Galatians refers to the truth of the gospel. The gospel is truth. And, you know, we even have that saying now in secular talk. That's like gospel truth. (laughs) Well, I don't hear much truth anywhere I look in secular society now, but I do find truth when I look at the gospel. Everything about the gospel is truth. And that's why it can liberate us. Because Jesus said, you will know truth, and the truth will set you free. Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul lists the, the armor of God, the whole armor that we are to put on, he talks about the shoes. And one day I'm going to come back and look at that in more detail, but he talks about your shoes being the gospel of peace, having your feet shod or prepared with readiness to preach the gospel of peace. The good news of the gospel brings peace into our lives. It brings peace 
into our relationship with other people. It's the, the opposite of peace, turmoil, war, strife, quarreling, contention. Those things are not good news. They're bad news. They're always bad news. I don't know about you, but I don't like war. I don't like conflict. I don't like quarrels. I don't like fighting. I like peace. I love peace. Sometimes I get up in the morning and I say, Lord, please, please, just give me one day of peace. Just one day. Without that phone call or that email or that whatever challenge that comes to disrupt peace. God is a God of peace. And I don't think as long as we're on this earth in these fleshly bodies that we're going to have days of perfect peace. But the gospel brings peace into our inner man. There, there is a peace of God that you can know only one way. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians talks about the gospel of the glory of Christ. We'll come back and talk more about that at the end of this study when we talk about the eternal hope that is promised us in the gospel. You see, the gospel doesn't stop with freeing us from sin or freeing us from hell. A lot of people think that's all there is to salvation. No, no, no. There's much, much more. We're saved from hell and sin, but it's with a glorious hope of being transformed into the very image, likeness, and yes, glory of Christ. And related to that, Paul uses this term when he writes to Timothy, he refers to the glorious gospel. And there is no message on the face of the earth more glorious than the message of the gospel. There just isn't anything as amazing, as astounding, as life-changing as the gospel of Christ. I don't care how many books you've read, how many novels, how many amazing stories, fiction or non-fiction you've heard. This is the greatest story ever told. It always will be. There isn't another story that's going to top this one. This is the story of God's amazing love. Amazing love. I would even use the word strange love. That God, in His eternal perfection, chose this plan to redeem a fallen, rebellious, God-hating race by becoming one of us. What an amazing story. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but it is a glorious story. Glorious good news. And finally, in the book of Revelation, it's referred to as the eternal gospel. This is eternal good news. It's not just for 70 or 80 years while we're here on the earth. This is about eternity. And this message is eternal in nature. The Bible talks about the Lamb of God who was slain before the creation of the world. Now, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was crucified about 2,000 years ago. That was long after the creation of the world. Yes, but in God's eternal mind... It's all a forever story. So before anything was even created, before the Garden of Eden, before Adam and Eve, before any tree or any fruit had even been created, the whole gospel message was formulated in God's eternal mind. I, I can't even begin to wrap my puny little brain around that, but it's an eternal gospel. I've given you two scriptures in this next section. There are others that I could have put in here, but I want to keep it brief. Paul is very adamant about this. There is only one true gospel. There aren't many gospels. There aren't different sizes and shapes and flavors, depending on which one you like the best. There's one gospel. And Paul uses some of the strongest language in the Bible, in this opening scripture. Look at Galatians 1, from verse 6 to 12. He says, I am astonished. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to a church. I am astonished that you are so quickly 
deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning, not to a different religion, to a different what? To a different gospel. Wow. So it is possible that people can somehow fall into a different gospel, not the right one. And he qualifies this, a different gospel, which is really no gospel. Because the one true gospel is the only good news. The rest of them may call themselves a gospel, but they're also bad news. Which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And listen to these words. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. You know, several worldwide cults probably come to your mind as you're reading this. Cults that have millions and millions of followers that were established centuries after the true gospel came through Jesus and through the apostles, which claim to have been delivered through angels or through prophets. Paul says, I don't care if 10,000 angels come down and claim to have a different gospel than the one we've already given to you. Let him be eternally damned. Those are the words he's really using. Strong language. Strong language. Verse 11. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. If you're not familiar with this passage and the next one I'm about to read, please study over them. This is very strong language, and it should encourage us to love the one true gospel, to boldly live it, believe it, and preach it. You know, we're taught nowadays that we're supposed to be open-minded and tolerant of everything. I see a man here who was totally intolerant of any other religion, any other message, any other system that was contrary to the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not talking about splitting hairs on how you think communion should be served or what kind of hymns to sing on Sunday. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the foundation of the gospel, which is what we want to look at in this study. We don't want to get bogged down in the weeds. We want to stay with the, with the big stuff. What is this one true gospel that Paul is telling the Galatians? It's not negotiable. There isn't a plan B gospel. There's only one. Now listen to the other passage here in 2 Corinthians. If you're familiar with the Corinthian church, they were, they were a pretty messed up church, kind of like us. <laughs> they were carnal, they weren't real spiritual, and they didn't have a whole lot of discernment. Paul had preached to them, taught them certain things, and then he would go off on his apostolic journeys. And you can read from especially 2 Corinthians, after he left, other false teachers and false prophets would try to infiltrate the church and they would come with other messages and these people would fall for it. Hook, line, and sinker. No discernment whatsoever. He says, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Or your Bible may say, from simplicity. I like that word, simplicity. We like to make things complicated. The gospel is actually very simple. 
For if someone comes to you, and apparently they had, and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, isn't that interesting? I didn't know there was another Jesus, but they had heard another one. If someone comes to you and preaches a different Jesus or another Jesus than the one we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, obviously they had received the Holy Spirit under Paul's ministry, but now it seems there's some other spirit trying to operate in the church, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. You know, when we talked about end times and the signs of Christ coming, and he predicted the collapse of the Jerusalem temple where he said not one stone will be left on another and the disciples said when's that going to happen what are the signs of this what are the signs of your coming and what are the signs of the end of the age you remember the first words out of Christ's mouth be careful that no one deceives you first thing he said be careful lest you be deceived apparently he knew that especially in the last days. There is going to be a flood of deception coming upon the earth, and it's leading up to a day in the not-too-distant future. We read about it in Revelation 13, which I believe is after the rapture of the church, when the Antichrist comes into power. It says there he will deceive the whole world. The whole world will come under a deceiving spirit. So, I think as we get closer to the coming of the Lord, we should expect to see more and more deception. And that's exactly what we are seeing. And it behooves us all the more to know what is the true gospel. How can we recognize the real Jesus? And how can we be sure that it's the real, true, Holy Spirit? And in all three cases... I come back to the verse we read in Isaiah 8, verse 18. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light in them. This is the final guide. This is the filter through which everything must pass. The filter of God's word. I don't care how many people are doing it. I don't care how many people are endorsing it or embracing it. If it isn't biblical, reject it. Plain and simple. There is another Jesus being preached. There is another gospel being preached. And I believe there's another spirit that goes along with that deception. When people don't want the Jesus of the Bible, hey, Paul says in the last days, people will have itching ears. They will just be looking for someone to come along and preach a different word to them. Hey, it's okay. It's okay to live in sin, and you can still come to church. Wow, that's great. I get the best of both worlds. I get to live in sin and go to heaven. What not to like? It's a false gospel. It's a false Jesus. I heard recently about a preacher who was caught in homosexual activity. He's actually facing legal charges now for this kind of behavior. And he was going into homosexual churches and encouraging these homosexual partners who are in church praising Jesus, saying, just be faithful to your partner and you'll all go to heaven. That's another Jesus, my friends. That's another gospel, and it's another spirit. It's a false spirit. It's a deceiving spirit. And if those people don't have their eyes open, and if they don't repent, they're being dragged right into hell by the devil. That's why the first word of good news that we read in Matthew 4 that came out of Jesus' mouth was what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repentance sounds like bad news, but it's actually very, very good news because it's the key that opens this whole thing up. We need to turn. We need to change. And the gospel promises us the power to change and to be transformed. Now, at the bottom of page 2, 
I've given you an outline of what we're going to look at in this study. We've broken the gospel, the good news of mega joy, into five parts, five key aspects. First, we're going to look at the good news of atonement, and we'll define that word when we get to it. It includes a whole lot of things which we normally refer to as salvation or being saved. This would cover things like forgiveness of sin, redemption, justification. All that is included in this first section, but that's only one part of the gospel. Sadly, that's where, where many Christians stop. Well, I'm forgiven, hallelujah, I'm justified, been redeemed. That's it. That's only the beginning of the good news. Secondly, we will look at the good news of deliverance. There were hints at that in the opening passage that we read in Matthew 4 and Isaiah. There is a deliverance from gloom, from oppression, from yokes and from bondages that becomes reality through the gospel of Christ. Third, and these are related, but I'm breaking them down into two separate parts. There's the good news of deliverance, but thirdly, there's the good news of healing. All throughout the Gospels, wherever Jesus went, he spoke the good news about the kingdom, then he healed all the sick people, and he set all those that were captive free. Very important aspects of the Gospel. Fourthly, we're going to look at the Gospel of the kingdom. That's a, an expression you find throughout the New Testament. The good news of the kingdom. What is the good news of the kingdom? It sounds glamorous. I don't know about you, but when I think of kingdom, I think of gold and palaces and, and thrones. And that's certainly part of it. But I like to replace it with the word we saw there in Isaiah 9, 6. The government will be upon his shoulders. Huh. That doesn't sound quite as glamorous, does it? When I think kingdom, I think gold thrones and glittery palace. When I think of government, I think of, uh-oh, police, laws, <laughs> rules, jail. Yeah, the government of God. It is all of those things. It is palaces, it is thrones, it is gold, it is crowns, it is glory, but it's also rules. It's law. It's the government of God. And we can't have a Savior if we don't want His government. Because the government is upon His shoulders. And lastly, we're going to tie it all together by looking at the eternal aspects of the Gospel. The most obvious being eternal life, but there's a lot to that term eternal life. What are we going to do forever? What is our eternal hope? It's all a part of the good news of the gospel. And, you know, hope is an important part of the good news. If all you have is hopelessness, that's not, that's not going to be good news. And along with mega joy... I think we could add the gospel of Christ brings mega hope. It brings an incredible hope into our lives that goes way beyond this earth, this life, this existence as we know it. It's an eternal life and an eternal hope. Now, I'm just going to introduce the next section and hold off until next week to really delve into this, but the first part kind of introduces us to the gospel in general, and I think it's generally accepted of all of Paul's writings, the one that most comprehensively talks about the details of the gospel is the book of Romans. And if you look in Romans chapter 1, notice how many times just in the opening verses, Paul refers to the word gospel. It's obviously his whole purpose for writing this letter. He wants to talk about the gospel. You only need to go so far as Romans 1.1. 1, 1. 
to find the first instance of this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. That's interesting. He realized his whole life, and in Galatians he says from his mother's womb, he was set apart for this purpose. I've been set apart for the gospel. My whole life is consecrated, dedicated, set apart for one purpose, the gospel. Verse 2, the gospel that he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's interesting. This gospel didn't just suddenly burst on the scene. As we saw, Matthew 4 quotes from the Old Testament writings from Isaiah. Isaiah preached the gospel a lot. There are a lot of references in Isaiah, but also in the other prophets as well, to this coming good news. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Regarding what? His son. There it is. That's the good news. It's all about his son. So anyone in the Old Testament, Moses, Isaiah, Zechariah, anybody who foretold the coming Son of God, they're talking about the gospel. Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Drop down to verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son. Notice that. With his whole heart, he had been separated for one purpose, to preach, proclaim the gospel of God's Son, Jesus Christ. He is my witness, how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you so I can collect an offering. Right? You know, I don't, I don't mean to be critical, but it, it's sad what in many cases the ministry has been reduced to now. You set up a tour... You set up some visits in a number of churches to see what you can collect. It's sad. It's really sad. We got it all wrong. Paul couldn't wait to get to Rome because he had good news to deliver to them. He had gifts he wanted to impart to them. He wasn't looking for anything from them. He says in verse 11, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And then he says, many times I planned to come to you, but I was prevented in the past. Look at verse 14. I am obligated. Note that word. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks both to the wise and the foolish. What's he obligated to do? Verse 15. That's why I am so eager to preach the gospel, the good news also to you who are at Rome. Now, if that's not enough, the next two verses should convince us that the gospel was the main thing in Paul's life. And you know, in 38 years of ministry, from time to time, the Holy Spirit has had to kind of tweak me and get me back on track. Because sometimes we drift off here or we drift off there and we get off the main thing. The main thing is Christ. The main thing is the message of His Son. It's not how many gates Jerusalem has or whether... You know, we're allowed to eat meat or, or we should eat vegetables. Those are small, tiny little things that, by the way, have divided churches 
because they failed to keep the main thing the main thing. Here's the main thing. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it, it, the gospel, follow these words carefully, it is the power of God. It doesn't say it contains power. It doesn't say it talks about power. It does. It reveals a lot about the power of God. But he says something far more than that. I'm not ashamed of this news, of this message, because it is the power of God for the salvation of a few people, of every one who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, and now he's about to introduce one of the main themes of the book of Romans and of the gospel. And it'll be covered in this first section, atonement. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith. From first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, if you were in Rome and this letter was being read to you, up until this point, you're on the edge of your chair. Wow, the apostle is going to write to us about the gospel. That's all he's talked about in the first 17 verses. Set apart for the gospel, called to preach the gospel, obligated to preach the gospel, not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God that can set anyone free, can save the worst sinner. I'm like, wow, what is this good news? And then from verse 18, he goes through this long rant that covers the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and most of chapter 3, where he doesn't say anything good. It's all bad. I'm like, hold on, Paul. I thought you were coming here with good news. You can count them if you don't trust me, but starting with verse 18... For 63 verses, Paul talks nothing but bad news. Is there a method to his madness? I believe so. And I would say in the last five to ten years of my Christian life and ministry, I have come to realize more and more the importance of this next section. If you leave it out, as many preachers do, and jump right down to Romans 3, verse 21, to start talking about the good news of justification by faith, which is what he alludes to in the previous verse, chapter 1, verse 17, I think you miss a vital part of the good news. And that is, you first need to understand how bad the bad news is. <laughs> And let me tell you something, and I'm going to stop here and we'll pick this up next time. The bad news is really bad. And the bad news isn't about the economy. The bad news isn't about Al-Qaeda. The bad news is about humanity. How messed up humanity is. And Paul goes on and on and on. He says, there's no one righteous, not one doesn't matter if you're religious or not. You're still a skunk. <laughs> he says nothing but poison comes out of your mouth. And finally, he, he says, the whole world stands guilty before a righteous and a holy God. That's pretty bad news. But at length, he sets the stage so that when he finally comes around to presenting the good news... It really is good news. And that's why I said, if you leave out the bad news, I don't think you really get the good news. Let me give an example. When I used to do a lot of street evangelism, we had pockets full of tracts and little Bibles. and We would just go up to people randomly on the street, shove a track in their face and say, Jesus loves you. They would look at us like, okay. <laughs> so what? God wants to save you. Okay, and probably in the back of their mind, they're thinking, from what? I don't need a savior unless I'm concerned about the from what. 
And what Paul is going to do in the next three chapters is explain the what that we need to be saved from. Just how bad our human condition is without this good news of the gospel. And by the way, notice in Romans 1, verse 17, a key word. It's the word revealed. And I want you to notice in verse 18, the same word appears again. Revealed. There are two things that are revealed to us. We need to know both of them. You can't have just one of them. It'll be lopsided. It'll be out of balance. Chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says, In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. It's a righteousness that comes by faith. This is not a righteousness that comes by works. It's a righteousness that comes by believing. And he's going to explain that a lot in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. But there's another revelation that must also come. And it's also contained in the gospel. What is it? What else is being revealed? The wrath of God. Or as my wife corrects me with her proper British English, the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Call it what you will. It's the anger of God. God's intense anger and opposition to something. And I'm just going to introduce this here and we'll pick this up here next time. The wrath of God is also being revealed from heaven against all the what? Godlessness and wickedness. Uh-oh. I think I know where this is going. Paul is going to talk about our sickness before he talks about the cure. And you know, I put a little quote here from Martin Luther. He says, A person must confront his own sinfulness in all its ravaging depths before he can enjoy the comforts of salvation. I say amen to that. The better you understand what these next couple of chapters in Romans are really talking about, and the better you can relate to it personally in your own life, the more the good news of the gospel is going to absolutely revolutionize you. But if you don't really get this part, I think the good news is just, it doesn't mean a whole lot. Okay, I'm saved. Praise the Lord. So what? Jesus is my Savior. Wonderful. He died for me on the cross. Okay, wonderful. And I'm, I'm not trying to sound snobbish here, but for many Christians, it's that lackadaisical. Oh yeah, Jesus loved me. He died for me. Without really getting into the meat of just how messed up was I to require God to send His own Son in the likeness of human sinful flesh and die in my place. And so that's what we're going to study next time when we look at this word atonement. And Paul will eventually get to the good news later in Romans 3, but we're going to talk a little bit more first next time about the bad news. Just what is man's condition? Your unsaved friend, your relative who doesn't know Christ yet. They may be nice people. They may be known as a nice guy or a good person. But based on the truth of God's Word, what is their real condition before God? That's what we need to understand, and I think that will help us to understand their need for the good news of the Gospel. So, we'll close there and continue right here next time. Uh, let's close in prayer, and if there are any questions, I'll be happy to take those. Father, we thank you. You could have left us in the darkness, in the gloom, in our bad news. 
But God, you are such a gracious, loving, heavenly Father that you saw us in our lowest state and you, O oh God, had a plan for redemption, for deliverance, for salvation that goes beyond the wildest fiction book. There is no fiction as fantastic and wild as the truth of the gospel. It is indeed the greatest and the most marvelous story that's ever been told and ever will be told. It's the eternal gospel, the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that in these studies you would open our eyes, you would give us a revelation as Paul had, a revelation of the one and only true gospel, the gospel of your Son. The good news that brings mega joy and mega hope. Lord, I pray that you would bring us into the fullness of that joy and hope, the joy of salvation, the hope of the gospel. Thank you for each one here tonight. Bless us, keep us as we travel to our homes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.